So who am I? What the heck am I doing here? My name is Baron Miller, like, like Sarah was saying. Uh, I'm in the Navy. I'm a chaplain. That means I, I do religious stuff, right? I pray. I, I preach sermons. I do counseling. I travel around. We move every couple of years as a family. We've been in California a couple of times. We've been in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, uh, where we like to say it don't get mo better. Um, a little inside Gitmo humor there. Uh, you know, I've, I've served out of Camp Lejeune with Marines. Uh, I've lived in Columbus, Ohio. We re I recruited chaplains for a couple years. It's been an awesome life and a great job. I'm stationed in Goose Creek at the Naval Weapons Station. So tomorrow morning, I will lead chapel services there, preaching a totally different sermon to a very different audience. So uh, bear with me tonight. There's a lot rolling around in my head and in my heart. Um, and so my family and I moved here. We've been attending, you know, Hope Church here for several months. And I was at coffee with Rob, uh, Pastor Rob, a couple weeks ago. And let me just say, if you've ever gone out really anywhere with Pastor Rob, let alone a place like Coastal Roasters, you realize Rob is a hub and everyone else is just a spoke, man. Like, that dude knows everyone, okay? Uh, he's like, yeah, that guy's on the council, and that's the police chief, and that guy's this, and this guy's a pastor, this guy's an Anglican priest, this guy. So Rob and I are having this coffee, and I'm learning that Rob is, you know, he just knows everybody. It's awesome, because I'm new in town, I know no one. And he introduces me to a pastor that walks in, a friend, I think a gentleman that's actually preached here before. And, and this guy was talking about... Um, his, his doctoral dissertation and some of the theology that has sort of moved him over the years. And it's a lot of the same stuff that, that I was into when I was in seminary writing my, uh, my thesis. And so he and I kind of started a sidebar conversation, kind of nudging Rob out a little bit. And, um, and, and we're talking about these authors and this great stuff. And I tell him, I said, I, I wrote my thesis on this concept of church ministry that I called in and for and with. And that means that a church is not only in a place, but that means it has to have a theology of place, right? An understanding of why God put it there. And, and it needs to not only be in a place, but it needs to be for a place. That means that they have to have a theology of neighbor, right? Church communities should be good neighbors. And to be with a place means to be part of community building. So me and this guy are having this zesty, lively conversation, and then finally he you know, rolls out, Rob and I sit back down, and he goes, hey, uh, we're all gonna be gone in a couple weeks, can you preach? And I said, sure, and he goes, and talk about that, all that stuff you just said. So as I'm preparing for tonight, I realize, man, I wrote 120 pages on that. Uh, yeah, so I hope you, yeah, carbo-loaded uh, electrolytes will be passed around later, no. <laughs> We're, we're not going to go there. Here's what we're going to do tonight, though. We're going to camp out on the four of that. We're going to camp out on neighboring. That's what I want to talk about tonight. Uh, I'm going to read some scriptures. I'm going to tell a few stories. And we're going to begin to build a theology of neighbor, one that I say is simple but not easy, right? That's the title of tonight's message, the simple but not easy. And what I hope we discover together is that neighboring is really this pillar of a healthy community and central to living how God has designed us to live. And so we're going to see that neighborly love is sacrificial. We're going to see it is uncomfortable, it is radical, and it is totally honored by God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask, as you are in and for and with us, 
God, that this church, Hope Church, fulfill that same kind of calling in this little town of Somerville, in the county of Dorchester and, and beyond, and in the lives of individuals here tonight in the room and those that even can't make it. Lord, as you, uh, you know, show us in your scriptures what it means to be neighborly. God, I'd ask that you open up all of our hearts and our minds to what you have in the word for us tonight and that you open up my lips and that my mouth can bring forth your praise. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, we're going to have it up on the screen here. This is one of two scriptures uh, that's going to be up on the screen tonight. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, in Christian circles, in church, we call this the great commandment. And it's important to note this second sentiment, uh, loving your neighbor as yourself. This is old school stuff, like Old Testament stuff. You can check it in Deuteronomy 6.5. You can check it in Leviticus 19.18. You're going to see that Jesus is bringing back into freshness an old concept of neighborly love. If these ideas are so important to Jesus and God's law, then how important should they be to us as modern-day Christian people? Being a neighbor is one of those ideas that I think we can often take it for granted. We can think that um, if everything is cool with those around us, then we're loving them, right? Path of least resistance, um, there's no issues, everything is fine. But is it really, right? Is it really fine? We think sometimes the opposite of love is hate. I read an article years ago um, where someone said, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's apathy. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's apathy because both love and hate require passion and energy and something, right? The opposite of love isn't hate, it's apathy. Love requires passion and energy, so its opposite is doing nothing, and that's how a lot of people right? Not, not us in the room. I'm not calling anyone out here, but we can view loving neighbors that way. Do nothing, right? Passive. Keep it fine. We can think least resistance equals obedience to God, and that is just not true. One of my uh, mentors in theology, a professor who I grew to know and love, a man out of Atlanta named Bob Lupton, asked this question. He says, I wonder what a church would look like that measured its success by the quality of its members' neighborly love. That's in your notes. I wonder what a church would look like that measured its success by the quality of its members' neighborly love. The Christian church community, and that is us right here in the room, we need a theology of neighbor to understand God's view of neighboring so that we can carry out and live out loud this great commandment. We need to capture the importance of practically loving neighbors if we are to really be a gift to our place. What I'm saying is it's not enough for a church to be in a place. We have to be for it. It's not enough for me to live in Gehagen neighborhood. I have to be for it. I have to be intentional about reaching out to these neighbors, right? 
I, uh, I like to go to an awkward place for quotes on neighboring, somewhere that you know, doesn't get a lot of airtime in churches, and that is the fourth century Egyptian monks. Uh, in the fourth century, Constantine was emperor. Christianity was becoming popular. Some folks felt it was getting watered down. Right, The red martyrdom had ended. That was when Christians were being killed in the Colosseums and persecuted that way. And things seemed to be going good in Christendom. But there were some of these Christians that felt that it was getting a little too soft. Right, So they're like, you know what? We need to preserve these disciplines like fasting and prayer and hospitality and all of these sort of things. So they went out into the wilderness and they lived in the desert in caves that they would call cells. And, and they became these sort of like um, Obi-Wan Kenobi type uh, monks, right? These Yodas, you know, people would come out to them and they were referred to as the desert fathers or the desert mothers. And people would come and they'd sit with them and learn from them and listen to their wisdom sayings, right? And you wouldn't think uh, there'd be a lot to be said about neighboring by people who have literally eschewed society to live in a cave, but you'd be surprised because these folks realized that neighboring was essential to life. Hospitality was key to life and death. Listen to the wisdom of one desert father towards a young student. Abba, give me a word from God. The wise mentor asked if the student would agree not to come back until he had fully lived the word. Yes, the eager young student said, then this is the word of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The young man disappeared, it seemed, forever. Twenty-five years later, the student had the temerity to come back. I've lived the word you gave. Do you have another word? Yes, said the desert father. But once again, you must not come back until you have lived it. I agree, said the student. Love your neighbor as yourself, said the desert father. The student never came back. Today, we can often consider neighbors as either people right next door to us, right, this very narrow, specific definition, or all people, right, global community, right, everyone's my neighbor, and it's so vague that our responsibility towards neighbors seems absolutely impossible, okay? Jesus specifically challenges all of these notions of who our neighbors are in the book of Luke chapter 10. If you want to turn there, you can. Verse 25 through 37, it'll be up here on the screen. We call this the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if, if you've never heard of a parable or if, you, you know, if you've not read this in the scriptures, Jesus often teaches in parables. These are stories with a moral point, right? It's a story that Jesus tells and, and it's designed to communicate something specific, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you shall live. But... He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side, right? This priest avoided him, right? What the heck? 
Let's see what happens next. Verse 32, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. I want to pause here. These are folks that were more concerned about becoming ceremonially unclean by dealing with somebody who might have blood on them, might be dead. They were more concerned with the appearance of what happens if I engage with somebody I'm not supposed to than they were about actually caring for their fellow human. But a Samaritan as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Samaritans and pure Jews were not getting along, all right? So that's why when Samaritans are, they pop up in the New Testament, they're often painted as the other, right? They're kind of, not the bad guy, but you know, they're, they're, they're not in the, the crowd. They had a, um, some kind of very different religious beliefs. They were Definitely second-class citizens to the Jews. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, that's money, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Wow. I put in the, uh, in the application section of your notes. Um, it's a good exercise anytime you come across a parable to ask yourself, who am I in the story? Who do I relate to? Why? I think this would be zesty, lively conversation in your small groups this week. If you're in a community group, I encourage you to lean into this scripture and go there. Who have you been in life? Why? Why do you relate to that character? Anyway, within this story, Jesus defines neighbor as one whom you are in contact with that is different. Someone that could be half dead, is helpless, vulnerable, forgotten by others. Someone uh, you typically would despise. Someone who can never repay your mercy and care, and yet we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves because this is the greatest commandment. So as we build this theology of neighbor, we have to have some meat to it, right? If I just leave us with Luke 25, we're, we're, we're wondering, or Luke 10, we're going to be wandering around looking for these good Samaritan opportunities, which is great, but if that's what we've reduced it to, we are missing the point of Jesus' words and treating them like isolated instances of kindness. We need something specific. So what I've done is I've outlined three ingredients for us tonight on loving neighbors. They're not the only three. In fact, in your community groups this week, maybe you could talk. What are some other ingredients? How have you seen neighborly love play out in your life? What have you practiced differently or in addition to these three? These aren't the only three, but they're a good start. The first one is reconciliation. First ingredient is reconciliation. I'm just going to read the scripture for you out of 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. Paul is speaking here, the Apostle Paul. He says, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. 
All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen to that. When we become intentional about ministering to neighbors and being a loving neighbor, we practice this ministry of reconciliation. People will see Christ in you and through you because of how you live. Right? That's the hope. Reconciliation central to neighborly love involves the risk of opening up our lives to those whom we may not share any affinity, but to people whom we actually have much commonality. That makes sense. Affinity, commonality. All right? When we model Christ's greatest commandment to our neighbors, we are modeling a countercultural way of relating, and here's why. Because we as people naturally gravitate towards people that are just like us. Often our ideal friend may not live on our street or work in our office, and so to follow God's model of reconciliation, we must be willing to be reconciled with others regardless of all the barriers, right? The socioeconomic status, the race, the religion, the gender, all of those things that can, we can say are reasons why we cannot love this other person. Another way to say this is this. If you have made Jesus the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, then we get to help others with that as well. That's what it means to be reconciled through Christ to God. That's the ministry that we have. That is our hope. And we happen to also be Hope Church, so it all kind of, see what I did there? Yep. All right. Um, When we, uh, as, as we've been reconciled with God, then we get to minister this reconciliation to others. And when we do that, we build this concept, and I'm not gonna teach on it very much, I just wanna say a little bit about this idea, this Hebrew notion of shalom. All right, you've heard this word shalom means peace. Um, I've, I've also heard the, the best definition that I've enjoyed uh, for shalom is this, comprehensive flourishing. Shalom comprehensive flourishing, a state where nothing is missing, nothing is broken, spiritually, emotionally, physically, economically, socially. This is done by an outpouring of love that only comes from a relationship with Christ. Shalom. An obvious example of reconciliation, especially in America, um, we use this language sometimes, we talk about racial reconciliation. We talk about... um, Black people and white people coming together in unity, right? Um, much like those, those cookies, right? We got a little white frosting and chocolate frosting is black and white cookie, right? Seinfeld episode. Um, so in 2000, uh, 2020, um, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, and, um, and, and my neighbor Justin lived with his grandma. He was right next door to us, and, and we had a fence separating our yard. It was old and metal and chain link, and, and, and Justin is a brown man, and I am a pink man. And so I asked Justin, I said, we're going to tear down this fence, not as, a, not as like a display of our <laughs> unity. I was actually going to build a bigger one. Uh, 
a, a much nicer one. And, and, and so I said, Justin, you know, we worked through his grandma. I'm going to pay for it. I mean, I'm going to build it. But Justin, will you help me pull up all the stuff and cut it and all this? He said, absolutely, man. So we set aside a Saturday to do this. Well, you know, in 2020, COVID's happening. Uh, Black Lives Matter riots are raging across our country. And there's a lot of, and still is, a lot of just tension, right? So our neighborhood had designed a unity walk. Sounds so good, right? Black people, white people coming together, marching in solidarity down the neighborhood. And I, you know what, church? Everybody who participated meant well. I know it. And there Justin and I are, shovels leaning on them, hours of sweaty labor, drinking a beer, looking at 300 feet of fence we just pulled up and, and at a job well done. And there in front of our homes, we see the Unity Walk come by. And we go, hey, look at these folks. Look at the Unity as meanwhile, Justin and I are sweating it out like brothers, right? And there we see it. We see a, a black family, and everybody's got their masks on. It's COVID, right? And they walk by, and, and we're like, where's the, oh, there they are. And like 25 feet later is a white family coming, because, you know, COVID. And, and then 25 feet later is another, I don't know, white family, black family, or whatever. And, and on this went for about like 15 families, right? The Unity Walk looked like a, like a segregation event. It was just, everybody was so separate and dispersed. Meanwhile, Justin and I are sitting there doing the stuff together, right? Black and white cookie. And uh, thinking, you know, well, I don't know what I was thinking. One thing was, I didn't know that story would make it in a sermon someday. But Justin was a neighbor. Not just a neighbor, but a friend. A real neighbor. The Jesus kind of neighbor. Not just a guy that lived there, but a guy that opened up his life. We shared things together. I'm still in touch with Justin years later. The simple, but the not always easy, right? If we want to be obedient to Christ, then we must commit to loving neighbors. Loving neighbors means more than smiles and warm emotions. It means engagement with the lives of those around us, just as it did for the good Samaritan in Christ's parable. Not only do we need this uh, theological understanding of reconciliation to fulfill neighborly love, but we need our second ingredient, hospitality. Second ingredient is hospitality. In his book, The Source of Life, theologian Jürgen Moltmann says this, the opposite of poverty isn't property. The opposite of both poverty and property is community. For in community, we become rich. Rich in friends, in neighbors, in colleagues, in comrades, in brothers and sisters. There is something special about opening up our homes to host someone else. And I know in hospitality, we think, well, hospitality is having people over for dinner. Yes, it is. It's also so much more. Let's take the blinders off, right? Let's open up the aperture. Hospitality doesn't have to be formal dinners. Within your neighborhood, your apartment complex, within the space that you work, there's a myriad of opportunities. Yes, host dinners, organize neighborhood garage sales, holiday parties, put together showers for expectant moms. You've got a neighbor that's moving, help. Tree fell in their yard, help them pick it up, right? There's just, it, it never ends. Um, Hospitality. In community, like hospitality, uh, is an others-focused endeavor, building community. Just as Jesus is in and for and with the other, so too are we, as God's people, to be in, for, and with others. And the ways we can serve others around us is not 
only a perfect picture of love for neighbor as we are neighbors in a community, but a perfect picture of what we as the church are meant to be like. A community of Christ followers of one heart and mind, treating others the way we would like to be treated. You're going to hear more about this in a few moments, but next Friday night, February 16, we have an opportunity as a church to engage with Redemption Towers right up the street. We get to host a dinner. The sign-up sheets are in the back. If you can give up a couple hours of Friday night, make a meal, show up, sit with, engage with the lives, we're not just trying to show up and parachute in and give away some free stuff. We want to build relationships with these folks, right? We want to, we want to become friends with these folks. I've seen in the course of my short life, many great relationships play out, especially with the elderly and people much younger, myself or even younger. Um, we, man, we can learn from these folks. We don't just show up as servants to give, but open, show up with an open heart to receive too. In March, right, next month, we're gonna do our first grocery giveaway of 2024. Later at the end of the service, Shannon will tell us more about all of these details, right? The Desert Saints have a, a, a saying of the practice of hospitality is really a life or death issue. Father Anthony is recorded as saying this, that with our neighbor there is life and death. For if we do good to our brother, we shall do good to God. But if we scandalize our brother, we sin against Christ. In 2011, I was, um, I was in the Helmand province in Afghanistan um, in this area, it wasn't a good area, it's called the Sangin Valley, and I was chaplain, I was working with CBs, these are Navy combat construction men, and I had detachments of CBs all over the, the country, really, so I would travel around, convoy, flying helicopters, right? So I end up on this little, it's not even a FOB, a FOB is a forward operating base, and it's bigger and it's built up, and there's all kinds of great things happening on a FOB. Like, literally, I've been in Afghanistan and gone to a pizza hut, like, some of them are wild, man. TGI Fridays is in Afghanistan. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> this is a little patrol base. It's like twice the size of this sanctuary. It holds 30 Marines, just a platoon, and they've got about six or seven of my guys there. And then there's a dozen of what we call the ANA, the Afghan National Army. And it's during Ramadan time, so it, it's, it's summer, it's hot, these guys are fasting, and... Um, the, the Afghans don't do a lot during Ramadan time because of just the lack of nutrition and, and they, they don't drink so much. So really, combat operations kind of crawls to a halt, right? Well, I'm the religious guy on this fob and I'm gonna do a service for these Marines and my CBs, but I don't want to offend the, the, the Muslim population there. So I'm very intentional about getting behind like a big tent. And right at the moment of the service where, you know, I have my, my stole on with these big crosses and I'm holding the communion bread and the, and the cup of wine. I'm literally looking about as religious as I can. One of those Afghan dudes walks behind the tent. What the heck that dude was doing, I don't know. And he's looking at me, giving me that look like, what is the Christian guy doing here? And I'm not feeling so safe at this moment, right? So I finish the service, and I'm like, man, I, this is one of those, like, I could get shot tonight. And, and I just envisioned on that little patrol base, the Marines and the Afghanis. It's just one of those, like, terrible situations, all because I'm serving communion. So I'm thinking, i got to do some damage control. So I, I bring a gift to the Afghanis that night. I bring them a cigar. And uh, they'd never seen or had anything like that. They were amazed that I would spend $5 on something like that and give it to them, right? And I'm like, well, you have no idea. They have more expensive stogies I have back in my bag. Um, 
And, and so I sit with these folks, and they're breaking their Ramadan fast, and they shared a meal with me. Check this out. All right, so one of these is not like the others. Uh, <laughs> somebody looks really happy, and those other guys are like, we've never seen a camera before. Um, and there's, you know, there's some of the food and, and the tea, and, and they shared so much more with me, right? And, and we were talking. They asked me about my family, uh, Interesting questions. In America, if your wife doesn't produce sons for you, can you just divorce her? I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, I guess. We don't really, you know, do that. But, uh, you know, they're asking me about Jesus. They're asking me about Christian faith and Protestantism and Catholicism. They just thought I was a priest, whatever. Uh, one of the dudes thought I looked like George Michael. And I'm like, how? and he had a kind of a twinkle in his eye. And, and I was like, how... How do you even know about Wham? Right? How do you know? Look, it looks like we're like, look at that. That's austere, okay? But guess what? Those dudes, they were a neighbor to me. They did everything for me that Jesus is talking about, and they're not even Christ followers. They're bringing in somebody who is radically different, a totally different, you know, at any moment, one of those dudes could turncoat to the Taliban and open up fire on us. Like, it's a wild west over there, right? Um, and, and those dudes neighbored me, right? Those dudes brought me in, shared their meal with me, asked me about my life, told me about their lives. We became brothers that night. Hospitality. You'll be surprised what hospitality can look like and where you can find it. Here's the final ingredient. Selflessness. Final ingredient is selflessness. As we practice reconciliation and hospitality, it helps to have a general understanding of, and hang with me here for a moment, economy and poverty as they relate to selflessness. All right, you see, in consumerism, we just get what we want. If we can't afford it, we whip out that card and we charge it, and we can engage in this compulsive behavior with no regard for uh, uh, you know, creation or humanity in our pursuit of stuff, right? We can just get greedy. Show of hands, who's, no, never mind, I won't ask you. <laughs> Paul says in Philippians 2, 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Simply put, selfless people should be good sharers, quite literally the opposite of consumeristic greed. I want to zip through these scriptures here. Listen for a running theme. Hebrews 13, 16. And do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Galatians 5, 13 through 14. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command Love your neighbor as yourself. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. Luke 6, 35 through 36, but love your enemies. Ooh, right? Love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Folks, we could check the scriptures all throughout and find this running theme, selflessness. One final story before we land the plane. A young man 
gets into an Uber on the way to the, the, the airport. His name is Kyle Carpenter. And his Uber driver is Bobby. Bobby is a Pakistani-American. Um, Kyle Carpenter tells Bobby he's, he's, he served in the Marine Corps for a couple of years as a, as a, as a young man. And, and Kyle's in his 20s. He's like mid-20s, right? And Bobby says, oh, let me tell you, I love America. Right, this country has done so much for my family. We have more opportunity here than we ever would have back in, in Pakistan, and, and I love this place. And, and Bobby's just going on about how grateful he is to be here. And as Bobby pulls up in the airport and Kyle's gonna get out, Bobby does what so many folks do to a veteran. He says those words, thank you for your service. And young Kyle Carpenter utters something back. He didn't, he didn't even think about what it would mean but it would become the title of a book. He said, you are worth it. He said, you are worth it to Bobby. What Bobby didn't know is Kyle Carpenter is the youngest living recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. In 2010, young Kyle Carpenter was a 21-year-old Lance Corporal, and he was in the Helmand province on rooftop standing watch with another Marine, and they started taking contact from the enemy. They're repelling the enemy's assault. And right between them lands a hand grenade. Now, Bruno Mars, Mr. 24 Karat Gold, says he'll catch a grenade for you, right? But Kyle Carpenter, without thought, with no memory of the moment, dove on that grenade and lived. Face was hamburger, lost all of his teeth, his jaws broke, he's missing an eye. Arms and legs are just shredded. The sappy plate his body armor took obviously protected his vitals just enough to keep him alive. They lowered Kyle. They thought he was dead. They lowered his body off the roof just like people cutting a hole in the roof and bringing sick people to Jesus, right? Remember that story? They lower Kyle Carpenter down to the Navy corpsman who works on Kyle and saves his life. Dozens of surgeries later and one Congressional Medal of Honor placed around his neck by President Barack Obama Kyle Carpenter says the words, you are worth it, to a Pakistani named Bobby. Church, our neighbors are worth it. Our neighbors are worth it. And I'm pretty sure when we meet Jesus face to face and we thank him for being the forgiver of our sins and the Lord of our life, I'm pretty sure he'll say something in his own way, you are worth it, right? You are worth it. What do we have to lose if we live this way, this Jesus way? What do we have to lose? Reconciliation, hospitality, selflessness. Let's live this gospel love out loud, church. Jesus' call to love our neighbors as ourselves is not good advice. It is the good news. Let's pray. It's a hard word, Lord to love you with everything we have, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. It is challenging. So God, I'd ask that you be gracious with us down here on earth as we try and live it out loud, as we try to uh, personify the calling you have on all of our lives to be the kind of neighbor that that Samaritan was in the parable in Luke chapter 10. God, we're gonna stumble, we're gonna fail, we're gonna you know, screw it up every which way. But help us, Lord, to see the opportunities, to have tender hearts, 
to, to hear what, you know, to be able to listen to the city around us and see where and how you are calling us to be neighbors, to be selfless, to be radical, to be counterculture and all of this stuff towards those that need it most. Help us to be the ministers of reconciliation that you call us to be. Help us to be bold in our hospitality and wild in our selflessness. God, and for we as a church, as we get to participate in this stuff in the local community, through the grocery giveaways, through the, the meals at, at, you know, at the Redemption Towers and things like that, I pray that you bless the, the work of this church, but not just blessing the work that the church does, but help us to be able to see what you are doing because it's already blessed and we can jump in and, and serve in those ways, Lord. Thank you for your teachings, Jesus. We love you. We're grateful that we got to spend this time with you tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen.